1846, a dentist by the name William T.G. Morton used sulfuric ether to provide anesthetic to a surgical patient. While certainly not the first attempt at providing anesthesia, up until this point, surgeons had little to offer beyond opioids, alcohol, or a bullet to bite on, hence biting the bullet. The advent of modern anesthesia changed the course of medicine. Laryngoscopy, endotracheal tubes, and further advances followed thereafter. The intolerable investigations and interventions of medicine had been turned tolerable. Today, our patient is critically ill requiring sedation, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Biting the Bullet, Sedation in the ICU. This talk must be prefaced by the understanding that sedation in the ICU is an evolving field with a heterogeneous body of literature. While today's talk will be based on current recommendations for practice from the Society of Critical Care Medicine, or SCCM, these will invariably continue to evolve with time. The causes and treatment of pain, agitation, and delirium in the ICU are inextricably linked. Before we can engage in a discussion about sedation, terminology is key. Sedation is the depression of a patient's awareness and reduction of responsiveness to external stimulation. Sedative agents also provide other clinical effects, including anxiolysis, which is the relief of apprehension or agitation, amnesia is memory loss, analgesia is the relief of pain, anesthesia is the loss of sensation. Understanding this terminology and what agents produce which effects will enable a prescriber to select an appropriate agent for a given clinical scenario. Now, let's discuss the principles of sedation in critical care. In the 1980s to 1990s, sedation in the ICU was an extension of the practice of general anesthesia. Deep sedation and neuromuscular blockade were common. Since then, the field of sedation in the ICU has been recognized as a distinct clinical entity requiring a different approach. To this end, two important principles have arisen. One, analgesia first, and two, lighter level sedation. Firstly, analgesia-first sedation promotes the use of analgesics, usually opioids, prior to sedative agents to meet sedation targets. Secondly, lighter sedation targets are associated with improved outcomes, including length of stay and decreased need for tracheostomy. The definition of light sedation remains a controversial topic. Clinically, when discussing sedation, it is useful to have qualitative systems to use to communicate the depth of sedation. Fortunately, many tools have been built for this purpose. The most commonly used and best validated tools are the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale, or RAS, and the Sedation Agitation Scale, or SAS. The Richmond Agitation Scale is a 10-point scale with 4 plus being combative, 0 being alert and calm, and minus 5 as unrasable. Conversely, the sedation agitation scale uses a 7-point scale, with 7 being combative, 4 being calm, and 1 being unrousable. It is important to learn the scale that your institution uses. In addition to sedation scales, there are objective ways of measuring depth of sedation. While many exist, we'll focus on one such index, the BIS, or the bispectral index. 
The index is derived from electroencephalogram, EEG lead input, from the frontoparietal lobe electrodes, which are fed into an algorithm that produces a number from 0 to 100. 0 being cortical silence and 100 being normal cortical activity. Roughly 80 corresponds to light or moderate sedation, 60 with general anesthesia, 40 a deep hypnotic state. However, the reliability of BIS remains an ongoing topic of debate. In a 2015 study published in the British Journal of Anesthesia, 10 awake volunteers were given neuromuscular blockade and monitored with BIS. The BIS level went as low as 44, despite participants being awake. This suggests that the BIS is highly prone to contamination and relies on the frontal muscle activity, or EMG activity. Ultimately, objective sedation monitors are not used as the primary method to monitor sedation depth. However, they may be useful adjuncts in patients who are receiving sedation and neuromuscular blockade. Think ARDS or post-cardiac arrest patients who are paralyzed. But even then, the reliability has been questioned. Let's talk about sedation protocols versus daily sedation interruption. From a practical perspective, sedation parameters, agents, and dosing ranges are dictated by a prescriber, but minute-to-minute decisions regarding titration of sedation is done primarily by a bedside nurse in the ICU. Again, the goal is to minimize the need for mechanical ventilation and length of stay in the ICU while keeping patients safe and comfortable. This is accomplished by two strategies. One, targeting light sedation, or two, daily sedation interruption, also called sedation vacations. The formal is largely self-explanatory, with most prescribers targeting a RAS of minus two to zero. The latter can be thought of as taking a peek under the hood, intermittently assessing a patient's underlying neurological status. After an interruption in sedation, sedative medications are restarted at 50% of the previous dose. In theory, both of these strategies should minimize drug exposure, promote alertness, and shorten duration of mechanical ventilation. Both strategies are viable approaches, and the evidence does not seem to support one strategy over the other. Let's look at an overview of sedative agents. As with anything in medicine, use what you know and know what you use. Choosing a sedative agent requires an understanding of its sedative, analgesic, amnestic, hemodynamic, and pharmacokinetic properties, to name a few. In brief, we'll discuss a few commonly used agents as an introduction to some of the considerations when using sedatives. Additionally, where appropriate, brand names will also be mentioned. While not preferred, the reality is that daily communication will use brand names, and in the interest of being practical, they will also be mentioned here. Dosing of common agents will also be included in the accompanying infographic. Propofol is a sedative with an anxiolytic, hypnotic, and amnestic effect with no analgesic effect. It acts by potentiating the effect of GABA in the CNS. It is most easily recognizable as an opaque white solution, hence the nickname milk of amnesia. The onset of action is within 30 to 60 seconds and a half-life of 30 to 60 minutes. The half-life can be longer in vivo after prolonged use due to redistribution to fat stores. Adverse effects include vasodilation and negative inotropy, which can combine to cause significant hypotension in some cases, particularly if given as a bolus for rapid sequence intubation. 
Additionally, there exists an entity called propofol-related infusion syndrome, or PRIS, that was first described in children or younger adults with traumatic brain injury. However, it can be observed in other populations. PRIS is characterized by refractory bradycardia and one of metabolic acidosis, rhabdomyolysis, and hyperlipidemia. It is associated with a high mortality rate and should be recognized early. Have a high clinical suspicion for PRIS if any patient who is sedated on propofol and has developed new shock in ICU. Treatment mainstays include removal of propofol and supportive care, which may include cardiac pacing and hemodialysis. Lastly, as a fun fact, propofol can turn your urine green, but has no bearing on renal function. Benzodiazepines are GABA agonists that are primarily a sedative with an anxiolytic, hypnotic, and amnestic effect, but no analgesic effect. Midazolam, or Versed, has an onset of action of 2-5 to five minutes and a half-life of 2-6 to six hours. In contrast, lorazepam, or Ativam, has a longer onset of action of 5 to 20 minutes and a half-life of 8 to 15 hours. Prolonged infusion increases the accumulation of metabolites, which require hepatic conversion and renal excretion. The most significant adverse effect is the signal for increased delirium when compared to some of the other sedatives mentioned here. In light of this, the SCCM recommends non-benzodiazepine sedative agents as first line. Additionally, there is biological plausibility for immunosuppression demonstrated in animal models. Studies have demonstrated benzodiazepine receptors on macrophages and following exposure to benzodiazepines, a reduction in neutrophil chemotaxis and phagocytosis. Opioids are familiar medications to many of us, used outside of the ICU environment frequently. In the ICU, there are a few extra caveats, but the core principles of use remain the same. Intravenous hydromorphone and fentanyl are commonly used in the ICU setting. Many other opioids, including remifentanyl and morphine, are available but used less frequently. Fentanyl is a potent mu-opioid agonist with an onset of action in 1-2 to two minutes and peak action in 5-15 to 15 minutes and a 1.5-6 to six hour half-life. It is highly fat-soluble, so it accumulates in tissue with prolonged infusion. Hydromorphone is a potent mu opioid agonist with a peak onset of 8 to 20 minutes and a 1.5 to 3.5 hour half-life. In contrast, it is less fat-soluble and is less prone to accumulation when compared to fentanyl. Both opioids can cause nausea, constipation, and respiratory depression. Fentanyl can additionally paradoxically cause skeletal muscle rigidity at high bolus doses. Dexmedetomidine, or Presidex, and clonidine are two alpha-2 agonists that act as sedatives. Let's talk about Presidex infusions first. It is a comparatively new medication. It was approved in Canada in 2010 for use as the sedative. It has received attention for its favorable effect and side effect profile. It provides anxiolytic and analgesic effects with additional unpredictable amnestic effects. It has become popular because of its ability to produce cooperative sedation having patients easily rousable, calm, and able to communicate needs while tolerating invasive interventions. Its adverse effect profile is additionally favorable. It does not produce respiratory depression. However, initiation of Presidex may induce a brief hypertensive response, followed by bradycardia and hypotension. This is less of a concern when bolus doses are not given. It has an onset of action of 5 minutes and a half-life of 2 hours. Safety and efficacy of Presidex is less understood, and at present, use beyond 24 hours is discouraged. 
Practically, it has been used as a useful adjunct as a bridge to extubation in patients who become combative when other sedative agents are weaned. Of note, it is an expensive medication at around $45 per vial. However, in a correctly chosen patient population, its cost can be offset with earlier extubation and decreased delirium, which you may see with other sedative agents. In contrast, clonidine is a less centrally selective alpha-2 agonist that can be given both parenterally and enterally. It can be used as a sedative-sparing agent and has a similar risk profile to Presidex. Practically, it is typically used as a transition from Presidex, usually after extubation, as a more economical option. The evidence available on alpha-2 agonists is primarily for Presidex. The efficacy of clonidine is inferred rather than directly studied. Ketamine is a non-competitive NMDA receptor antagonist that produces analgesia and dissociative anesthesia. In contrast to other agents, the dissociative effect is active at a target threshold of 1 to 1.5 mg per kilogram, rather than on a continuum. Like dexmedetomidine, ketamine does not cause respiratory depression. Ketamine is also used at lower sub-dissociative doses of 0.1 to 0.3 mg per kilogram per hour for anesthesia in the ICU, particularly in awake, non-intubated patients where the lack of respiratory depression makes it a useful adjunct to opioids in patients with severe pain. It is also commonly used as a bolus dose for short, painful procedures in ICU patients, such as changing burn or vac dressings. Hemodynamically, ketamine causes release of endogenous catecholamine, which, in an otherwise well patient, maintains and sometimes increases blood pressure and heart rate. However, if a patient's endogenous catecholamine stores are exhausted, for example in prolonged critical illness, it may paradoxically induce circulatory collapse. This is one of the reasons ketamine is less commonly used in the ICU. Its adverse effects include an emergence phenomenon in which patients may experience vivid dreams and agitation. It is most commonly seen in the emergency department used for procedural sedation or rapid sequence intubation. Ketamine is also commonly used as a sedative for pre- and intra-hospital transport, so you may see patients arriving in your ICU running a ketamine infusion with EMS. Alright, time for our medicine minute. There has been a trend towards lighter and lighter sedation targets in the ICU literature. To this end, Olson et al. conducted the non-SEDA trial, published in NEGEM of early 2020. They asked the question, in critically ill, mechanically ventilated patients, does a strategy of no sedation, as compared with light sedation with daily sedation breaks, impact 90-day mortality? In short, there was no difference in mortality. Interestingly, non-sedation is a viable treatment option, something that seems nearly draconian at first glance, but is certainly not for everyone. One of the most important takeaway messages is that mortality is not the only relevant outcome. As one might have expected, non-sedated patients were at higher risk of self-extubation and removal of other equipment. Outcomes did not include important balancing measures such as nursing workload and psychological distress. Perhaps understandably, 30-40% to 40 of ICU survivors develop post-traumatic stress disorder from their ICU stay. The effect of a no-sedation strategy on PTSD remains unknown. A closing pearl on sedation. You can always give more, but it's hard to take away. Consider this when managing sedation in any circumstance, particularly in procedural sedation. 
That's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Biting the Bullet, Sedation in the ICU. This episode is written by Dr. Sherwin Wong, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Phil Lair and Dr. Gord Boyd. The Internet Work Series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Kiriopoulos. This podcast was recorded and produced by Leah Kiriopoulos. Music production by Lakshmi Santhanoa. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As always, don't forget to check out www.theinternetwork.com for our associated infographics and resources. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.